Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. So this is the beauty of the dance of this methodology, because when you go absolute on one thing, right? People say, well, Terry, you told me not to eat oxalates, but you let me eat oatmeal and that's an oxalates. Well, you also have a massive hormonal imbalance and oatmeal pulls and draws to the colon. Those hormones which then can be metabolized out. So that's, that's what I love about this because there's always inherent intelligence in the body giving us that feedback. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am joined with Terry Cochran. She's the founder of the Global Sustainable Health Institute, is an international thought leader in longevity and maximizing human potential. Terry has developed the Cochrane Method, a future-facing multi-system wellness model that examines the intersection of genetic tendencies, energy, and your client's current state of health. She specializes in solutions to complex health conditions and serves world-class athletes. A dedicated advisor, speaker, and educator, Terry's partnerships include Singularity University, Maverick 1000, Renaissance Weekends, and the Da Vinci 50 Longevity Alliance. She's been featured in the Washington Post, and has been a repeat guest of the Emmy-winning Dr. Partha Nandi shows. She's regularly featured on the podcasts and summits of the nation's top health entrepreneurs, including Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Radio and Ben Greenfield Fitness. A pioneer of high frequency and intentional living, Terry is the author of the Amazon best-selling new release book, The Wildatarian Diet, Living as Nature Intended. Hi, Terry. How are you? Hi, Diva. So good to be with you and your audience. It's really interesting. You know, we both had past lives that is so far remote of what we're doing today. You switched out of the real estate business as a top producer in the field, and you switched over to health and wellness. So tell me a little bit about that transition and what switched you over into the health and wellness field. Uh, it is indeed uh, mysterious how the universe lands uh, 
things in front of us that at first appear to be really rigorous and scary and actually are the blessings of our life. And so, yes, I, I spent 20 years in uh, commercial real estate finance on the institutional side. And my last tour of duty, as I call it, um, I uh, ran uh, a department within the multifamily division of Freddie Mac. And so I looked uh, to manage risk uh, for our multifamily portfolio. I was uh, a consummate negotiator to uh, try to bring the best to both sides of the equation, borrower and under. And um, that's what I did. And I loved it. And I thought I was pretty good at it. And after the birth of my first son, uh, his three-year well checkup, it was anything but a wellness uh, report. Uh, we were told to expect brain seizures, that he would not grow past five foot four, that he would uh, be impaired. And at the time, he was experiencing really significant asthma. At three, he was barely talking and walking. Actually, my in-laws were very worried about him at the time, thinking this child's not normal. And uh, the next several years uh, related to steroids uh, and more steroids. He was taking as a little guy, we didn't even know this amount, 60 milligrams of prednisone regularly as a oh, wow. you know, 40, 40 pound year old kid. Just what that did to his endocrine system and particularly his adrenals, which were already compromised to begin with, was, was devastating. And so by the age of five, I really started seeking out what is an alternative? What if it doesn't have to be this way? So I, I started dedicating my risk management skills to managing his return to health. I knew nothing about medicine or nutrition or energy, but I really felt that you can apply skill sets to anything in life. And so I applied my, my really solution-seeking uh, disposition because I'm a Cuban refugee and my parents always taught me to live in the solution, not the problem. That I applied that and massive amounts of research because he's 20, will be 27 in just a few months. And so that's a long time ago before really the internet was even, Google was, wasn't around and we didn't have the access to information that we do today. So I interviewed parents, I went to libraries, I was really curious about other children and how they were developing. And after multiple, you know, books of research and inquiry, I it was an epiphany. Oh my gosh, the food I'm feeding him is poisoning him. And within five days of changing how he ate, he started breathing better. His eggs, his really like extreme bleeding eczema started improving a little bit. We started seeing the allergic shiners go away. It was a long journey, but it was the impetus for me to really seek alternative methods. And by the time he was 10, I decided to leave um, my previous life and be that mother for other mothers that was told to deal with a broken child. And so now fast forward almost 20 years later, and here we are. And here we are. And interesting. I mean, so 20 years ago, correct me if my timeline is off, but there wasn't a whole lot of issues as they are now with glyphosate and pesticides, right? It was a matter of the foods that weren't specifically accurately given to him because he might have had some issues with specific genetic composition that might have been the reason why the foods that he was taking was reacting the way it was. Absolutely. And in his case, what I later found many years later was that my pregnancy was a difficult pregnancy. It was a traumatic pregnancy. And so I was actually taking from his adrenals to help support me. 
And so it makes complete sense that he was born adrenal insufficient. So he didn't have those natural cord steroids to manage his inflammatory response. And he was on a level of fight or flight because I was in fight or flight. And so I transferred my stress response to, to him in utero. And so he was much more delicate. And as a matter of fact, I was on 10 weeks of bed rest with him. And even on 10 weeks of bed rest, he was born six weeks premature. So he wanted to get out of there. So yeah, I stopped eating him, um, my stress response. And, you know, that was really important because now we know that stress is one of the fire starters for genetic expression. And his little, his poor little genes, which we know he has the, has methylation issues. He has sulfation issues. He has oxalate metabolism issues. He's got some issues with dopamine metabolism. So there are a lot, not issues, but I would say genetic possibilities that these things can be expressed. And so I didn't know it at the time, but when he was born, effectively, he was genetically, epigenetically expressed which then made it really hard for him to process anything that had sugar or mycotoxins or mold because he was already living in the stress response, already in a predisposed fight or flight, always pushing epinephrine in his little body. So he was already feeding those things that could effectively harm him. However, if they would have not been expressed, you're right, 20 years ago, glyphosate was much less of an issue. So... Luckily today, he can do pretty much what he wants. He's doing really well. And, you know, we, we've gotten him to the other side of the bridge. But it was really fascinating how in, you know, the rearview mirror in retrospect saying, my gosh, my child was born in fight or flight with an epigenetic expression 20, almost 27 mm -hmm. years. Interesting enough, you know, we've chatted offline and, and you're also an intuitive and a medical medium. How long have you known these skill sets and how did this come about? Well, everything in life is a practice and we have to practice what we are gifted with. Um, I believe looking back again, right in the rearview mirror at the age of 10, you know, I would have these dreams that were very real. And then some of those facets of those dreams, they materialized. And even at 10, I saw myself put fully in my dream state, bad stuff out of people. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'd have the rope and I'd really pull it. I didn't know what it was. Um, and again, you know, I've been very much a, a traditional lifestyle. Went to college, was in a sorority, but people would always seek my counsel. And um, I intuitively knew how to approach what they were facing and to really support them out of whatever it was that they might be stuck with. Uh, so that continued. And, and even at Freddie, I would, they would come in instead of to make a deal, they would say, Hey, I have the situation. Can you help support me out of it? And so I'd always felt like I was, you know, a good listener, but really when I really felt that this came to much more of a, of a, Oh yeah, it's really there is when I became very ill through my own inadequacy of managing my stress response through the life transition where seven viruses reactivated in me and I had I had liver damage I had brain encephalitis I had lung damage I had complete neuropathy my cognition I, I use my brain for a living and I couldn't find my way home I can remember my address couldn't lift up a coffee cup so I call that now my period of animated suspension and I had to surrender to my body to figure out why it was doing it. Uh, I was told I had a 15% chance of survival. The, uh, the um, infectious disease specialist that I was working with said, even if you come out of it, you will not be yourself again. 
And it was in those moments of surrender where I surrendered to what is it that's really happening. They had misdiagnosed me. It wasn't what they said. It was all viral. And I was seeing it in my practice that, you know, you never try to heal yourself. But effectively, I had to take it into my own hands. And so with the surrender and with the return of my, um, my whole self, um, once I really went to this place of, okay, my body can do this, within two weeks, my liver enzymes went from 430. And I found the answers that I needed to really bring myself back to health. But then I started really noticing, wow, I'm getting some really interesting information <laughs> uh, that's being downloaded. And it's super accurate. I would, I would get information and I'd look it up in the clinical uh, literature and there it was. And so, you know, the body of work that I've accumulated, very scientific over many years. And my book has over 400 citations of this is, you know, this is actually in the clinical literature. What I ended up doing is I became a massive assimilator of information, bringing it in, and then integrating it to develop a methodology that I believe is pioneering in my clients believe so too with their, you know, the efficacy of sustainable and vibrant health. Um, but it just keeps growing. And so now I work with clients and influencers at the quantum level. And so we match energy with my methodology to really really, as I, as I, you stated in my intro, to maximize their human potential because we are energy. And those back when, when they thought well, this is very woo, uh, I have now deemed it woology, the biology of woo, because it really is a science and quantum physics is proving that we are energy and everything is energy. And when we tune to the frequency of that which we might not have been able to tune into, just like dogs hear a different frequency, we can hear different frequencies. And I believe universal wisdom is available to us if we're tapped into that frequency. Yes, that's that's um, well said, and, and thank you for sharing all that. And talking about wooology, you know, one of the cornerstones of your practice is applied kinesiology or muscle testing. Can you? define that a little bit about what that is to the listeners and kind of share with us how you use this when you diagnose your clients on a regular basis? So I did not invent applied kinesiology, but I, what I think uh, really innovators do is they take someone's wonderful work and then they 2.0 it, right? They make it even better. And that's what I say with the people that learn from me, 2.0 my teaching so that you can make it better. And so applied kinesiology is based on the fact that we have a bioenergetic field. NIH has proven that there is a field outside of us that is energy. And Montague, who was a Nobel Prize laureate with AIDS research, in his experimentation, he uh, used a centrifuge as part of his work. And he found that when he cleaned the centrifuge, there were subatomic particles remaining. And so it wasn't clean. And with that, he was able to extract those subatomic particles, put them in a solution, and then have them put in vials. And his work has you know, been grown, and now there's a whole applied kinesiology discipline. But effectively, what applied kinesiology is, is putting in the energetic frequency signature of, let's say, garlic or estrogen or dopamine into the field of the individual. And then applying pressure to the arm to see if in the field of that individual, that electromagnetic signature of whatever that is, is keeps the field balanced or breaks a circuit in the field and the body has no resistance. 
And why it has no resistance is the circuit breaks, if you will, sort of metaphorically. And so the, the nerve can't fire to the muscle to hold the arm up. And as you noted, Diva, I work with some world-class athletes, some of the top in the world, and no one can outmuscle this process if it creates an interference in the field. And so what it really allows us to do in the way that I've adapted this methodology is that I scan organ systems to see where this interference might be. Traditional applied kinesiology just looks at one meridian. Well, I'll ask the pituitary or the thyroid or the liver or the endocrine system, the ovaries, are you there? Is there an interference there? Especially if we're looking at pathogenicity because we know that pathogens, um, particularly viruses and and uh, um, bacteria like to hide in tissue. And it even is subclinical because it may not show on a serum work, but we find it subclinically through this approach that says you have an imbalance with this. Do you have an overt allergy or an overt um, sensitivity? Maybe not, but it's still creating an imbalance in your field. And therefore, if you continue to eat, for example, foods that are high in mold when you have candida in your field, which is also a fungus, that's going to be a problem. And so it really helps us create a granular approach to how we look at the body. And what's super cool is in the field of epigenetics, we do a lot of nutrigenomic analysis with our naturopathic doctor who performs the analyses and we interpret them. That's just the potentiality of, do you have this gene polymorphism? Our work helps us discern, is it expressed? And so it really helps us figure out where they're going because it's not just about the genes, just like my son, back to my son. It didn't matter that he had all those genes. What mattered with polymorphisms, what mattered was he was born, they were expressed because he got most of them from me. <laughs> and I, I'm not expressing them anymore. When I was really sick, they were all popping. You know, I had expressed all those uh, potentialities. But we also know that we can de-express what is expressed, just like we can turn down the volume on pathogenicity so they're not bullies in our sandbox. And when we do that, we achieve optimal health. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical eBooks and number 21 in all of a Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctor2patient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. And that's the beauty of this all is that there's obviously testing for, um, for gene testing, 23andMe and all these other companies, but there's not, to my knowledge, any kind of modality that allows us to diagnose in real time genetic expression. 
And this is the field of epigenetics, and you've taken this such a step further. I mean, I mean, a, a huge leap further in, in your method of applying applied kinesiology and understanding the gene SNPs and understanding the biochemistry. You're able to determine what genes are expressed and what are not expressed, and being able to, you know, if they're inappropriately expressed, you have a, a, an algorithm where you can provide the patient or the clients food and supplements to de-express or unexpress that that gene that we want to turn off. And so it's amazing to me because your system has a built-in redundancy so that if indeed the gene is is proven to be expressed, you know, you have these built-in checks with specific foods and specific supplements that if you test them in of itself, it actually allows you to understand that yes, this is in correlation with the gene that is expressed or unexpressed. And it's, it's a built-in redundancy, it's over and over and over again, so that you could actually take a food and reverse engineering it and understand that it's the exact gene expression that you're seeking and, and diagnose with, with applied kinesiology. Absolutely, and you said it better than I do, so I'm gonna take that from you and give you credit. It is a, re- a, a redundancy feature within the algorithm of my methodology that is our check and balance. So for example, if you have the uh, cystathione beta synthase polymorphism, which is, I call it central broadcasting station, CBS, that gene has to do with how you process sulfur. And we need sulfur to convert to sulfate in the body for the mucin layer of the gut, for our neurotransmitters, for our collagen structure, for calcifications and so forth. So if we test that and that gene is expressed, another way to prove it uh, through food is that every food that contains sulfur most and most likely will fail. The only instance uh, would be what I call the hierarchy of needs, and this is how we get so granular. So let's say that all the cruciferous vegetables, which are sulfuric, fail for that individual. However, egg yolk passes. Well, why? That there may be another gene, the polymorphism, where they have the comp gene, where they need choline. And egg yolks are also really rich in choline. And so why did that individual pass the egg yolk by failing, but failing the other ones? Because the hierarchy of needs said you need choline from the egg yolk. But even then we counsel our clients over easy, soft, boiled, because when they're in that softer version of the yolk, you will be able to extract the choline much more easily. So this is the beauty of the dance of this methodology, because when you go absolute on one thing, right? People say, well, Terry, you told me not to eat oxalates, but you let me eat oatmeal and that's an oxalate. Well, you also have a massive hormonal imbalance and oatmeal pulls and draws to the colon, those hormones which then can be metabolized out. So that's, that's what I love about this because there's always inherent intelligence in the body giving us that feedback. End of your method. So you already spoke about some buzzwords. So let's go in and, and, and define those and let's really get into the, the, the nitty gritty of the wildetarian diet and the Cochrane method. So you said some buzzwords about oxalates and sulfur and another buzzword you haven't mentioned is amyloid. So let's talk about these at length and, and kind of like do a deep dive here. All right. So wildetarian, which is a word I invented <laughs> uh, and a concept and a whole movement, it's really it's really eating and living to your genetic blueprint and your current state of health by minimizing foods that are rich in amyloids, mycotoxins, which are fungal, and foods that may inhibit your body's ability to process protein, fat, sulfur, and oxalates. And there's four wild types that I've developed within the wildetarian structure. That's why it's a 
it's a diet that's um, customized to your genetic blueprint and your current state of health. So I am a low sulfur, low oxalate wildatarian. What does that mean? Well, in my genetic blueprinting, I have a lot of genes that don't allow me to break down sulfur or oxalate. So what is sulfur? As I said, again, sulfur is a, it's a compound found in, it's an element found in many healthy foods that needs to be converted to its end product, which is sulfate. So it can do all those great things that I mentioned before. However, if you're genetically predisposed and glyphosate, which is the Roundup, which is liberally sprayed on our crops, we have almost 300 million pounds of Roundup sprayed on our crops every year in the United States. That's nuts. Just think about that year over year. And we've actually hit a tipping point. And I saw that tipping point occur about three years ago, where people that even didn't have the genes became dirty genes because it's just such a, it's so vastly available everywhere we go. So eating low sulfur foods instead of eating, for example, kale, I call it killer kale. Dave Asprey and I we joke about killer kale. Um, instead of eating kale, I'm going to eat bib lettuce or Boston lettuce or romaine lettuce because those lettuces don't have that sulfur component. So I switch that for the other. Instead of having broccoli, I'm going to have zucchini. So what we do is in the wildatarian, it's not a deprivation-based approach of, oh my gosh, I can't eat this. We say, no, eat this instead, because this is something that's going to marry. It'll marry up to your genetics and you'll feel so good. Today, I had a woman, she lives somewhere in the United States. We did genetic analysis. I've never met her, or nutrigenomic analysis. She had a rash. She had rosacea for 20 years, Eva, 20 years. She had no energy. She was completely swollen. Her gut was a mess. In six weeks, her rosacea is gone. Her energy's up. Her gut is fine. She needed to be a low sulfur, low oxalate, well deterrent. So let's get to oxalates. What are oxalates? So oxalate actually is a protective mechanism found in many healthy foods, such as almonds and black beans and spinach and actually berries. However, if we have certain genes, this is SUOX gene, or I call it the gopher gene, polymorphisms, and those genes have been expressed. Again, back to glyphosate, because glyphosate has stopped our body's ability to produce the gut microbiome bacteria that used to be able to metabolize those oxalates. Now they're not there. And actually, I know that there's a company out of Switzerland who's trying to create a probiotic to actually return that oxalobacter bacteria back into our bodies, um, because we're not making it anymore, not, not making it sufficiently. So that which we used to metabolize, I used to spinach all the time, but now those oxalates can create crystals in our bodies. And it's been tied to myocardial infarction, which is heart attack. It's kidney stones, gallstones. It's been tied to thyroid nodules, neuromas, lipomas, adenomas, all the omas, these gross crystallization, polycystic ovarian syndrome, cysts. Um, when we cannot break them down, these things will calcify. That is why gallstones and kidney stones, over 85% of them are calcium oxalate stones. That means your body did not metabolize that oxalate and created a stone. That's a problem. And so again, instead of eating that, you go to the squashes, you go to tomatoes, which they think that nightshades are a problem. I don't find it because once you lower the allergy stacking within the body, nightshades are actually really good. And the body, what I believe, I haven't proven this, but this is a it's a theory that I have is that we are adapting. 
to be able to manage the foods that we can manage because we can't manage the foods we can't manage anymore. And so that's the oxalate. And then the big one is amyloids. And I'm really proud of this. I didn't discover the amyloids, but I did apply it differently than anyone else I know. And so through, again, clients coming to me that are basically not able to be cured, and I'm not saying I'm curing, but to be that rebalanced, people that have been told you're going to be living this, or you won't, you're actually not going to be living at all. We, we work with a lot of that, you know, end stage type um, diagnoses. A client came into my practice that had end stage amyloid doses, and that is, um, in his case, it was a rare form of cancer that two rounds of chemo had put him into congestive heart and kidney failure. And he was given his last rites, and he was told to go home. And his wife was a CNN producer at the time and they found me. And I didn't know about amyloids. What were they? That was almost a decade ago. At the time, I had an expatriate from NIH who was a scientific researcher that was doing work for me. And as I asked her to go and find the research around amyloids, why is this? This has to be, how can this be happening? And what we found, well, first let me define amyloids. They are truncated protein structures. These are exogenous amyloids, amyloids that come from outside truncated protein structures that are indigestible. And the clinical literature shows that when they are not digested by the body, they will accumulate tissue specific or systematic. And when they accumulate tissue specific, they can be the amyloids around his heart, they can go into kidney disease, heart disease, uh, Lou Gehrig's, ALS, um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, like the beta amyloids of the brains, especially in Alzheimer's, and also they help initiate autoimmune condition. And so the clinical literature showed, hey guys, guess what? These exogenous amyloids are coming from our food supply, the most studied of which are chicken and beef. Why is that happening? They're not inherently in animals of the wild. What the literature showed was that the crowding conditions, especially in chicken, were creating these amyloid structures within their tissue that could not be broken down from the cooking process. So when we ate them, we are then accumulating them in our body. And so Glenn, my uh, wildatarian number one, <laughs> by removing the amyloids from his food supply, he also had to be low sulfur because he was creating calcifications, low oxalates, and he had to be low fungus. Within three months of doing that, the light change, which is a marker for how you measure amyloids, were normalized. Wow. Not only did he not die, the, the light chains normalized and then he was able to continue his chemotherapy. And I worked very closely with the oncologist on how to manage the food and when we did chemo or not. And so they, they even said, well, you're, it's going to come back in a year. You know, this is a very, very end stage situation. It's going to come back in a year. It's going to come back in two years. Well, it's almost been 10 years. And Glenn is doing really well. And so that was the genesis of understanding that the amyloids have a very deleterious effect on your body. And the, and the studies show that it loosen mice that when you remove the amyloid burden, the body removes its amyloid burden. So we've seen this over the thousands and thousands of patients and clients that I've treated now when we lower their amyloid burden, really things return to uh, balance. And beyond what that did for this individual, what we now know also in the clinical literature, but what we've seen in myself included when I had the seven viruses light up on me because I wasn't fully wild. I was writing the book in the process of my period of animated suspension was that 
these amyloids turn on pathogenic loads. So the stress was the light, you know, the kind of the, the uh, striking of the match. But I was kept feeding it by the food supply because I used to eat chicken all the time. And it was feeding the amyloids that were turning on viral loads in me. And so removing them, taking away those amyloid burdens and removing the stress response really helped me get back. And taking away my sulfur and my oxalates because they all feed together really helped me get better. And so the fourth tenet of the wildatarian approach is fat malabsorption. Well, what does that mean? I call stress the dirty cupcake. It is a fatty sugar that really is a fire starter to our uh, gene expression, but it also makes us fat malabsorbed because it opens up the tight junctions of our gut. It increases the turns on pathogenicity and it makes us not able to process fats as diligently. And again, if you have fat metabolism impairment genes like the APO gene or the VDR gene, or the MTHFR6677T gene where you're not a polymorphism, where you're not a great um, assimilator of bile, bile salts, which are the emulsifiers to break down fats, then eating a high-fat diet is going to kick your butt, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a woman that is mincing, and especially if you're a woman that is mincing during her period in her mid-cycle, that can make you depressed. Eating a, a ketogenic diet when you're fat malabsorbed and you're a woman that's mincing can make you clinically depressed because you're so fat malabsorbed and you can't bring the neurotransmitters through the blood-brain barrier and you're potentially recycling estrogen which then replaces serotonin and you don't have enough serotonin. So these four elements of the wildatarian approach has really enumerated or rather illuminated how eating to your genetic blueprint and your current state of health based on wildatarian principles is really important, especially in what we're dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for outlining all that. It's very, it, it's, yeah, I, I would imagine a lot of people are gonna be hitting the rewind button and <laughs> going back to this because there's so much juicy information with what you just said and shared. Going back to some of the things you talked about, um, specifically with amyloid. So it's often found in animals, like you said, specifically beef and chicken. But what if we are eating an organic diet or, you know, pasture-raised animals, grass-fed beef, and, you know, is that still an issue? That's a really great question. It is definitely better than eating commercial animals, right? The commercial animals we know. There's so many reasons why we shouldn't eat them, but amyloids are clearly one of them. What my theory is, is that you have to know who that parent of that pasture-fed animal was because you have transfer of DNA generationally. And so if you're looking at a heritage breed animal that has never been uh, genetically modified, if you will, it's probably going to be okay. But what we find is pasture-fed and pasture-finished, and also you have to be really careful with the definition because pasture-fed can mean pasture-fed for five minutes and then their, their corn finished for most of their lives, right? And free-range chicken, the definition is very loose with the FDA. They can be on a, on a parking lot for five minutes, and that's free-range. So we really have to first understand if we're going to go that way to so really find out who that provider is and talk to them. That's why I love farmer's markets, because people are honest, right? The farmers will tell you, and I always talk to them, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to quiz them, but I'm trying to inquire what's best for my my genetic blueprint. I also believe that if we have a certain level of gut integrity, 
and we are not expressing genetically. Yes, every now and then. I had a filet mignon earlier this, you know, this week. I did fine. Why? Because my body's robust. But I'm not going to have filet mignon day after day after day because eventually that's going to be too hard for me to assimilate. Until I became wildetarian, I had, I always had GI issues. And I couldn't break down my protein. Well, of course, I have the MTHFRA1298C. I can't do that. I don't break down protein very well. I don't make hydrochloric acid. I always had problems. I now have such a happy tummy because <laughs> I can break down my proteins. It's really great. Um, and you can tell because the best, the best indicator of a happy gut is what you see in the toilet every, you know, when you graduate. Yeah. And so it's really important that we're you know, linking it. So again, the body talk, which is all part of the wildetarian teachings is what is your body telling you? You know, when you eat these things, are you feeling like you have massive amounts of energy and no inflammation and your stool is happy and your brain and your gut is happy and your muscles are strong? Because what we do know is when we can't break down protein, we can't make muscle. And that's one of the questions that we have in our wildetarian quiz. Do you have trouble building muscle? Do you burp a lot? Those are, those are questions that the body's telling you, I'm not good at breaking down protein, at least the protein that I'm eating. I'm not doing really well. And then the other thing about amyloid, you know, I think we chatted about this is that oftentimes if there's a pathogenic load in our body, like these amyloids will feed into the, the viruses and then it's actually feeding into the biofilm that, that is created by these viruses. So you're strengthening the armor around these viruses is preventing your immune system from attacking and, and doing away with these viruses. Absolutely. I call it the ping pong effect. And what the clinical literature shows, and we've proven it empirically, <clears throat> is that amyloids will turn on pathogenic loads. Amyloids feed biofilm, which is the protective coating. Biofilm makes amyloids. <laughs> so it's like, holy gosh, they're very smart. And we're, we're getting stuck in the process. And so really critically important that we are neither feeding the amyloid burden nor are we feeding the biofilm burden and biofilm is helped to be made by oxalate rich foods which build biofilm because oxalates and aspergillus mold they feed on each other so that's why eating peanut butter can really be a problem because it's a high mold and it's a high oxalate food it's, i call it the devil on steroids um, because it, unless you are really robust, I think one out of maybe 500 individuals in my practice can really withstand peanut butter long-term. And, and, you know, they've done studies on peanuts having a, a carcinogenic effect because it's an aflatoxin, which is, it's mycotoxin on steroids. So, you know, we really have to be mindful around the food, not to be afraid of food. So instead of peanut butter, let's do sunflower butter, uh, or cashew butter. Almond butter is high oxalate, so I can't do almond butter, but I love sunflower butter. So it's just finding that kind of that match to me or to, to you to what is the best way to, to marry my foods to my genetic blueprint and my current state of health. You know, if I'm if I'm fighting a cold, which you know, knock on wood, I've been you know very healthy post my period of animated suspension. Uh, I'm not going to be eating a lot of dairy, even though I love dairy. Why? Because it's mucus producing. So it's just really, it's navigating. And what's so beautiful about these divas, I work with children and these kids that have been with me for years, they are so facile with their bodies. Truly understand what's going on. And then they lean in and lean back when they need to. It's, it's so empowering for them. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, a clinical provider, as a physician, 
And I've actually had the opportunity to be your client and also shadow you and see many different types of clients and people from all walks of life come in. And it's amazing to me how I've seen people walking through the door day after day with chronic issues that have been plaguing them for years, if not decades. And having them come in and having you do your 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 methodology and employ your the Cochrane method, and they come back in a few weeks and there's significant improvement. And this is these are people who have been on antibiotics, antivirals, you know, and some eat to the point where they're actually getting immunotherapy, you know, because of a suspected autoimmune conditions. And this is such a nightmare because this is just, you know. Big Pharma is winning again. And it's just in this what unfortunately physicians like myself went to medical school for. It's like we basically are, are pawns of, of Big Pharma because when we come out, we're just basically equipped with our script pad and ready to write whatever we think is, is needed to make this person better. And really, it, they may get better, but it's really putting a bandaid over the symptoms. And unfortunately, that's not how medicine should be practiced. And all physicians, you know, are devoid and lack of knowledge with specifically nutrition. And then you add into what else you're doing with genetics and epigenetics and gene expression and the biochemistry. I mean, we don't know any of this. This is crazy. So it's, it's, it's really something where I feel strongly where your method should be actually on the front lines in terms of teaching people about actually how to practice, practitioners like myself general practitioners. And it's something that's teachable and it's something that is so useful for, for clients and patients. And I can't emphasize how important it is. And I hope one day that that's what will come true is that your method will be on the forefront of, of institutions that are teaching students to, to be healthcare practitioners. Well, thank you. That is so kind and generous. And uh, yes, uh, we're working on uh, putting together a practitioner model, as you know, and you're, 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 you're one of our first eyes on <laughs> some of the information that, that we're, um, we're building here. It's true. And, you know, I, I bring it back to my son, you know, where I was told, hey, this is just the way it's going to be. And he would be a very different man today had I listened to that dogma. And I know that the clients that I have here, not only do they get better, but then they become what they call, they call themselves my, the disciples of this practice because then they are living this life and people are saying, my gosh, what did you do differently? And how do you do this? Oh, well, I, I'm adapting this approach. And so, you know, the grassroots effort is really something I love. I love the word grassroots effort because it has roots, right? And so when we built a great root system and it has stability, it's a great foundation to really build something enormous and, and something that's powerful. And I think that, you know, my, my son calls me a 15 year overnight success, uh, <laughs> but um, because it was 15 years before my, my, the, 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 my knowledge really kind of, kind of came out into the, into the forefront. But, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you say this because, you know, you have witnessed, um, as you said, what is possible in the practice. And, um, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to now really want to start sharing it because we do believe in, in mine is a component, your, your expertise in plant medicine is, is a component. We're working with stem cell uh, specialist, Dr. Ubekaitis, who is a genius and I'm certain will win a Nobel Prize in his, his positioning on stem cells, but very small embryonic like uh, stem cells. And then we have 
you know, we have the work of Dave Asprey, who's doing, you know, this, his upgrade labs, and we have Harry Massey, who's doing InfoCeuticals, and we have energy medicine, and it's all coming together at a time where the, the world, Mother Earth, is actually, it's, it's howling for a different approach, because if we continue down this path of large feedlots, monocropping, We just, it's not sustainable. Large farming isn't sustainable. It's depleting the nutrient value of our crops. The the, the soil is 90% nutrient depleted. The methane, because of the way that these animals are being fed, the off-gassing, I don't think, you know, we've had hooved animals on the planet for millennia. Why is it a problem now? Well, because we're feeding them corn and they can't bring it down or we're giving them antibiotics and they are literally producing massive amounts of methane. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's even down to the planetary level that this is this is now important to to really look at things differently. Absolutely, and what's also amazing to me is that, and and if you're able to share, that's great. But if not, no big deal. But I mean, even when I'm actually shadowing with you, we're seeing so many different people coming in whose genes have been tripped because they've had the vaccine. And I'm I'm specifying the co- the uh, the COVID vaccine, yeah. and it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, we're using the method in, in determining this, but it's it's unbelievable how people's genetic expression is tripped time in and time after again. And you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the next ten to fifteen years, but if we're seeing these issues now, you know, fresh into the whole vaccine rollout. I'm so frightened as to what's going to happen down the road. And we're talking about one third and almost one third of our population in this country has been vaccinated, either having the full dose or just the first dose. And so, I mean, my goodness, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, if this, if this stuff continues to show up the way it is when, when they're having autoimmune conditions and genes being tripped and having all sorts of reactions and, the good thing is, is that there are ways to actually like to manage this stuff, you know, but it has to be recognized and it has to be, you know, unfortunately at this time be seen by you as a practitioner to identify this problem or just, you know, people just have to be tuned in a little bit. Yeah, I just see it's a problem and I hope that, you know, things will change and I hope your method will will be rolled out fast enough so that it'll catch up to all these problems that we're seeing and, and eventually you know, we'll, we'll get everything under control. Yes. Well, thank you. And, and I do believe, you know, anything that's an insult to the body you know, that has to be, the body has to manage the, the way that the body can best manage is to let's lower the burden on the body. Yeah. How do we lower the burden? Amyloids are a great way to, you know, stop eating amyloid rich foods, stop eating mycotoxin rich foods, really understand your genetic tendencies because we are much better able to manage our immunological response when the body burden is much lower. It's a tipping point. So, you know, it's really, I, I think there is a way uh, to the other side of this whole thing that we've been looking at. Um, but we have to be smart. We have to look to our genetic tendencies. You know, am I a vulnerable individual? Am I not a vulnerable individual? And, and how vulnerable am I today? Right? You know, they, they've said, you know, you don't want to get, even if, if you're getting a flu shot and you're sick, don't get the flu shot, right? It's just like, you know, your immune system's already compromised. So it's like, let's just be diligent and, and vigilant around what's, what's my body doing and how vulnerable or not am I? 
before we make any decisions about what we put into our body, whether it's food or something else. It all matters. It all matters. Right. And before we end our show, if you have some last comments in terms of just summarizing some things that we've talked about, because there's so much information that we've given our listeners, but some key things to take home on what to avoid and what to focus on when it comes to food consumption. Yes. Yeah, so great question. I think, you know, the cleaner we eat, the better it is, but we say, are you eating the right, wrong foods? So we have a quiz on our website, terrycochran.com. Take our quiz. See if you're that person that you can smell asparagus in the toilet when you eat asparagus. That means you might have impaired sulfur processing. Do you have a history of yeast infections and you might be depressed? You might have an oxalate sensitivity or have you had gallstones or kidney cells? Stop eating those oxalate-rich foods. We'll tell you what they are. Um, if you have trouble building protein, if you're foggy-headed, don't eat. Nobody should be eating commercially raised animals, but you know, go to fish or go to uh, bison instead of beef and um, lamb instead of pork or wild boar and venison and veal and no, excuse me, not veal, venison and elk, and go to the wild-caught shellfish. You know, keep your body burden low. And I also offer the fact that we have a lot more authority over our body than what we believe but listen to it and be gentle with it. And then in this, you know, the space of uncertainty, again, stress is the biggest signal to our genetic expression. And so if we can stay in alignment and be in our own power as our highest authority of what is right for us, not what someone is telling us we should do or have to do. You know, if I would have listened to the doctors, my son would be very different. I listened to my highest authority and he's very different as a result. And I'm very grateful to him is the catalyst for me doing the work. So nothing is impossible. We have so much authority over our bodies. It's really important that we tune in and we manage that stress burden because that's our biggest immune builder is staying in alignment. Excellent. And for people who are listening who want to find out more information about you and your book, what's the best way of doing so? Uh, my book is on Amazon, both hard copy and Kindle. Uh, TerryCochran.com is my first website. The Global Sustainable Health Institute is how I'm teaching the, you know, what is going to be rolling out with the Cochrane Method and my energy work. Uh, and uh, we're on all sorts of social media. So please tune in. We do lots of Ask the Experts, either on Instagram or Facebook. We post it every other week today or this week we're talking about bone health. So uh, we really are here to inform, to empower, and to remind you that you are the ultimate authority of you. Thank you, Terry, for joining us. And thank you for all the work that you do. And uh, I really encourage all of our listeners who really want to take some better steps and optimize their health to, to seek you out and make an appointment. Thank you. So good to see you. Thank you, you for too. having me on your show. Thank you. <laughs> 